I left her office and the song we had sang at church the morning I found out I was pregnant came on. And I had to actually pull over on the side of 512. And I just sobbed, I sobbed. And I think that was the moment that I realized whether she lives eight weeks or 80 years, that's not my job. Right. And sorry, I can either spend her entire life worrying or I can enjoy what I have. Yeah. And I knew that regardless of what that looked like, I had to make that decision then. And obviously now I have a very healthy, active, crazy 13-month-old. There are moments still where, you know, mom guilt and worry get the best of you. But I think knowing that months and months and months before she was even born, um, I let go of it. And so when those things pop up, I think I have that moment of, oh no. And then you remember it's already gone and it's not mine to worry about. And I think too, she's just such a reminder of God's faithfulness for us, yeah. that seeing her, you know, toddle around our house is really, we live with that reminder. Yeah. And that's day. pretty incredible. Hi everyone, I'm Elise Marsh and I'm your host here on the Perfectly Wonderfully Made podcast. I believe the journey to becoming a parent allows each of us a glimpse into the heart of a creator who so desperately wants us to know just how chosen, designed, called, and beautiful we are. He sees us perfectly, wonderfully made. So I am so glad you guys are here with me this week. Whatever you're doing, I pray you are encouraged as we share stories about all that the Lord is doing in our lives. All right, you guys, date night happened in our house this week. And my husband, Jeff, and I, we do not get out as regularly as we would like to. I will say that. But this week, we were successful. And you know, the entire day, it felt as if the universe was trying to thwart our date night plans. Uh, We had originally talked about dinner and a movie and then decided kind of at the last minute to forego the movie and a desire to just sit and talk about what's going on in this season of our lives. It was so good. We had real authentic conversation and I'm just so grateful. It's hard with little people and busy jobs and honestly just being super tired. I mean, I don't know about you, but seven o'clock rolls around and I am like, dig in in the bottom of the barrel for just that little extra oomph of energy. But the investment in your spouse will never return void. It was it was good. It was so worth it. So go plan a date night this week. So both of my preschoolers had field trips to the pumpkin patch this week. And who knew the magic of this incredible vegetable? Uh, I mean, the wonder and awe that my kids had for these pumpkins was pretty fun to watch. But you know what? I was thinking on the drive home after the pumpkin patch, I was thinking, okay, can I check this off the list? Or do we still need to squeeze in that picturesque trip to the pumpkin patch with our whole family? You guys know we all have, maybe we all don't, but some of us maybe have that list of, you know, Pinterest worthy fall activities that you want to do and get done. It's just crazy. It's almost like there's some requirement that overtakes our calendars now that a season has changed. And fall is a short season here in Washington. At least it sure feels short to me. We get four, maybe six weeks of that picturesque, lovely fall weather where it's crisp and sunny. And then the rain comes and sneaks up on us and invades when we're not looking. This month has just been busy in the Marsh household, busier than I'd like to admit. And I had this moment where I had to look at the calendar and really have a come to Jesus. And I had to say no to a mops event, one that I really, really wanted to go to. And I just realized I can't have all the things. 
I get the privilege of having a podcast. And sometimes that means I have to choose to say no to hanging out with my friends when I want to. And I also get the awesome privilege of having a part-time work from home job. And sometimes that means I do not fold all the laundry or put it away. I get the privilege of doing what I'm doing in that very moment well or at least I sure try. So here I am doing my very best to provide a platform where I believe women can be encouraged. And you know what? In an hour from now, I'm going to do my very best to get all the dishes done as quickly and efficiently as possible. But I can't do it all, not at the same time at least. And that's okay. I'm so excited to share my conversation with Lindsay Westerfield with you all today. I've known Lindsay's husband since elementary school, but got the opportunity to get to know them as a couple when I taught them a private childbirth class about a year ago. Lindsay chats with us about her PCOS diagnosis at the age of 22, getting pregnant with her baby girl, and what it looks like to really trust the Lord and trust that he's going to sustain us in our everyday lives. Lindsay is so authentic and so real. You guys are just going to love getting to know her. Okay, Lindsay, thank you for coming to the cabin. I'm so glad you're here. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Tell everyone who is Lindsay Westerfield. Um, That's a really good question, depending on time of day or day of the week right now. Obviously, I'm a mama. I have a 13-month-old daughter, and I'm married to my wonderful husband. I'm also a full-time teacher. I'm also a full-time grad student. I also try to make time for fun like this or spending time with my people at church. So, yeah, I wear a lot of different hats throughout the week. So Definitely. You're busy. Okay, where are you going to grad school? I wanted to know that. Yeah, so I'm going through University of Northern Colorado. Okay. And it's actually an online program for deaf education specifically. So I'll have a master's in special ed when I'm finished in May. Thank you, Jesus. That's awesome. So what do you want to do with your master's when you're done? I mean, I'm a teacher now, but that was not my goal originally. And so because of that, I don't have a degree in education, although I am a teacher. My special education degree kind of came in a roundabout way. I had to go back to school and I had to be pursuing a degree in education. And instead of getting a third bachelor's, I decided to go big or go home. And now at this point, uh, my priorities have shifted a bit and my career path has shifted. But I've kind of come to learn and love that everybody has something from special education they can take. So I just try to apply it in general at this point. But I really don't see myself making a big move anymore now that I did one recently. So... So cool. Okay, so tell everyone what grade do you teach now? Yeah, so I am a high school teacher now. I teach junior English, so all those 11th graders and their nerves before applying to college are mine. And then I teach um, high school American Sign Language, so I have 9th graders all the way through 12th graders at that point. Okay, so Lindsay, how did we get to know each other? So ironically... Anybody from Puyallup can attest to this, but we probably knew each other in a half a dozen ways before we met. I went to school with your siblings, and my husband went to school with you, and we're both Puyallup people, so inevitably you see each other around church events and coffee and all of those good things. And finally, I think when it was all said and done, I sent you an email and said, um, by the way, I'm having a baby in a couple of weeks and somebody has to teach me how to do this. Right. It was a little bit last minute, but you came out and did a private birth class for us, which was one of my favorite things that we did during our pregnancy. So it was kind of a fun way of merging a lot of our worlds and, right. you know, a lot of past um, interactions and into the present. So yeah, that was awesome. I had so much fun at that class. I think you guys had recently moved in Mm -hmm. when I was coming over your beautiful home. It's so fun to chat with you and hang out and get to know you. That's one of the things I recommend so strongly because I was so against taking a birth class. And I think there was an element of pride that I'm a well-informed, well-educated person who can figure out how to push a baby out of me. And there's also the element of privacy and not wanting to you know, be with a group of strangers asking the most intimate of questions. And when it came down to it, I was feeling very unprepared in that final trimester when people would ask me a question. And although I had well-researched, doing it with your own body is very different. 
And uh, as soon as I sent you the email and you said you'd come over and being in my own home was so critical for us. So that was something I really, really enjoyed. It was super fun. It was. Tell us about your hubby, Drew. How did you guys meet? How did you fall in love? We want to know, how did you decide to spend the rest of your life with this man? So this is a story we love to joke that we will lie about to our daughter. For those who know us, we have a a seven-year age gap. Do you really? We do, yes. Okay, so tell us, how old are you, Lindsay, and how old is your husband? So I'm 24. Uh, My birthday's next week. Happy early birthday. Thank you. And Drew turned 31 over the summer. So we actually met. Uh, you know, at, at Anthem, of course, because we're from Puyallup. Um, and he was my barista in high school. You know, we just saw each other somewhat regularly in that sense. And a lot of my friends worked with him. And as I went through high school and whatnot, we hung out at a lot of the same church events. Um, we had a lot of the same friends. And him and I were friends at that point. But it wasn't until after I left high school and I was um, a full-time college student and, you know, we started dating. We dated for three years Um, I went away to college and that first year we did long distance and I came home that summer and he proposed. So So it didn't take him long. No, we were, yeah, I think we were in our third year of dating and we did a long distance engagement for a year, 13 month engagement. And it was terrible. It was, yeah, I I think now it's easy to be like, oh, you know, we just made it happen. But at the time it was miserable. Um, My saving grace was a roommate who was also in a long distance relationship, but her now husband um, was actually in Japan. So they had a bit more to consider as far as logistics, whereas, you know, I tried to come home a couple weekends a month and he would come down and visit us or, you know, we'd Skype, whatever. But it was hard and it was really hard to plan a wedding because you can't go and talk to a, you know, a florist or a caterer or whatever. So my mom was really like Pinterest come to life. I would find a photo, I'd send it to her and she made it happen. Um, So that was rough, but I was coming home really frequently at that point because of the logistics. We bought a house while I lived down there. I legitimately graduated, walked across the stage, stayed, you know, for 20 minutes to say goodbye to my friends. And we got in the car and we drove to our first house and moved me in. So that's insane. Yeah, it was chaos. Um, So we were engaged for 13 months. We got married. We've been married four years now, just over four years. But he's just one of those people who challenges me in every way. And I love that about him. Um, He's super sweet and thoughtful, but he fills in all the gaps for me. And he always has something. He is always very encouraging. Um, He tells me to do stuff that I don't think I can do. And lo and behold, he's usually right. (laughs) He's just my perfect match. And especially since becoming parents, I think it's easy to see more so that role of helpmate come in. He was my best friend, first and foremost. And now I see that in a whole new way since we get to deal with the ins and outs of parenting. Yeah, that's so great. Yeah. So how long were you guys married before you started thinking about kids? What was that journey like to getting pregnant? Being friends for years before we dated and then dating for years before we were married. We had a lot of those like major conversations pretty early and we both knew we wanted kids and we both knew we wanted a, a family fairly soon. But originally we had said, you know, let's be married for two years and make sure we feel settled in those roles and then move from there. About two years into our marriage, we had started trying to get pregnant. And if you know anything about me and my students can attest, I'm a black or white person and it comes in the form of obsession sometimes. So I was that person who could tell you what, you know, cycle day it was and what my basal body temperature was. Oh God, you were were on on it. Yeah, it started out really casually. um, And then as time went on, the longer we weren't pregnant, you know, the more intense I got. If I can read about something and learn about something, I feel like I've done my part. So we were um, fairly well versed in fertility at this point. I actually ended up having a cyst rupture, not knowing I had a cyst at the time. And it was debilitating. Ended up, you know, seeing my general care physician and then moving on to have ultrasounds, this, that, the other. And I was diagnosed polycystic ovarian syndrome. And I was 22. Um, So that was young. And I really don't have many of the physical symptoms. I've had multiple care providers look at me and say, well, you don't really have PCOS. No, my my ovaries say otherwise. Sure. So I was completely inovulatory. So there was no eggs for us. And I was meeting actually with a fertility specialist. It was two years ago today, actually. Wow. And I walked out of his office. You know, he was the probably the fifth or sixth doctor I had seen at that point. 
and I walked out with an armful of paper prescriptions. It was the first appointment Drew couldn't go to. And I left just feeling so overwhelmed. I'm sure. And I came home and we talked through it. And really what the gist of the appointment had said was, okay, we're going to try, you know, so many milligrams of this for so long than this. X, Y, and Z. And it was, you know, six or seven medications. And when it was all said and done, if you're not pregnant in six months, we'll send you to Seattle and you'll look for in vitro. And at 22, I wasn't ready to face like... All of that. That's a lot to face. Yeah. And it was so... So quick. And I know for most people, you know, you try for a year before you even get to see the doctor. But because I already had a diagnosis, it was a little quicker. And Drew really just kind of talked me down and said, you know, let's pray about it for a few more months. Let's just take some time. Let's breathe. And let's revisit in six months. And for me, that was a plan. I needed something to be in place. Right. We really spent that time just focusing. And for me, I think it was harder. Um, And he had to learn to understand that it wasn't that I saw myself as an inadequate as just his wife but that I needed that other side of me fulfilled too. So we decided to wait. I never filled the prescriptions. And our plan was February 1st. We'd go back. We'd have this discussion, you know, as a team with our doctor. Two weeks before Christmas that year, I had missed, I mean, I was not regular to start with, but I had missed a period. And I had the heat pump go out in my classroom and I was sweating to death and I was so sore And finally, I said, you know, if my period doesn't start by Tuesday, I'm taking a test. And I had seen a lot of negative pregnancy tests in the year we had tried to get pregnant. And of course, being a newlywed, you panic every time you feel queasy and you take a pregnancy test anyway. We had just decided that summer, that was kind of our breaking point of let's do all the things we need to do then. If this is going to be a very costly and potentially, you know, time intensive procedure, we're going to take care of ourselves. And so I decided to go back to school. Uh, He went back to school at that point. We started building a house. It was just this kind of chaos. And we've joked in every season of our marriage, we keep thinking, oh, this is our season of calm. You know, as you end this chaos, we had the whirlwind of our wedding and all these different things. And so this was kind of going to be our season of calm, which never really happens. So we were actually living with his parents when I found out I was pregnant, waiting for our house to be finished. It was surreal. But I had that moment of just sheer awe and thankfulness because it had been such a journey and we just had been so sure that this wasn't, you know, God's plan for us. And at one point, the doctor had looked me square in the eye and said, you will never have a baby without medical intervention. Wow. And I think that's just a hard way to start your pregnancy when you don't oh, yeah. want that trajectory. And um, yeah. so and just having, to have someone speak that over your life yeah. is so hard. And I was alone at that appointment. I just remember that very, very vividly because it was such a definitive statement. And yeah. I don't feel like you actually hear that often from your providers. Sure. That you know, led us to, to how, where we were. It was, it was about two and a half years into our marriage that we were pregnant. And that was really incredible because we had said around our second anniversary, we wanted to have a baby. Well, we got pregnant shortly after our original goal date, which, you know, how we have goal dates, right? That's so ridiculous, but it's really true. And she was born just after our third wedding anniversary. So that's amazing. So cool. Okay, so how did you tell Drew that you were pregnant? Because I'm guessing this has got to like hit him out of out of the blue, mm-hmm. out of left field. Again, if I could research something and I could learn about it and I could plan for it, then I felt prepared or I felt like I had done my part. That's the teacher in that you. That is so the teacher. And I am so anal in that sense. And so, of course, having tried to get pregnant for almost a year, I was already, I had, you know, 87 pins on how to tell my husband I was pregnant. And I was so shocked in the moment. I didn't know how to not tell him. And his parents had been like, hey, you want a cup of coffee? You want to come sit with us? And I was like, I I need to go take a shower. Like, I just, (laughs) I didn't know how to go be by myself without it being weird. And I had waited, you know, and planned and dreamed of this moment. And I had already decided how to tell him. But how do you not just burst forth into the bedroom and scream it at him? Sure. So we actually... It was a Sunday morning, I found out, and we went to church that morning, and I just hadn't said anything. And I had a moment with Jesus at church that he just reminded me that she's not mine. And we had that moment a few times through my pregnancy, learning not to be fearful, but it was super incredible. And a good friend actually dedicated her girls at church that morning, so I remember it vividly. Wow. What were you? I remember the sermon. It was incredible. Um, It was actually the week on hope for Advent, so that was really incredible to me. And shortly after I left the house under the rouse of, oh, I'm I'm going Christmas shopping. My husband is a whiskey connoisseur, and I knew I wanted to buy him a bottle of Blue Label. If you know anything about whiskey, it's 
exceptionally expensive and it's kind of a treat. So I had already formulated this silly little poem in my head and I went and bought the bottle and I had it engraved and I went to Target and bought a onesie. And of course I'm spewing all this at the Target cashier because I can't tell anyone (laughs) and I'm trying not to lose my mind, but I'm so excited. I wonder how many people have told Target cashiers they're pregnant. I just was carrying this little Santa's helper onesie, like losing my mind and convinced I was going to see everybody I had ever known. And I got home and set it up. And the bottle was engraved to say, pink or blue, we'll wait and see. I can't wait to meet you, daddy-to-be. Love, baby Westy. I set it up on the counter and I set up my computer and, you know, kind of was like, hey, can you help me move this? And of course, I'm like, you know, my heart is in my throat and my palms are sweating. And he came up and the pregnancy test was on top of the onesie at the base of the bottle. And I'm like screaming from the corner because his face like says it all. And I'm like, read the bottle, read the bottle. And he held up the pregnancy test and goes, I don't need to read the bottle. I can read this. (laughs) So it was really a moment of shock. But I think when we met with the midwife the first time, one of her first questions was, was this planned or a surprise? And we kind of laughed and looked at each other and said, yes, (laughs) because she was a very planned surprise. But, you know, it wasn't our timing and it wasn't our plan, but that's how it worked. And we're thankful. That's awesome. Okay. So you said that you, during your pregnancy, you had a lot of these moments where you had a lot of fear. Yeah. What were some of your big fears throughout your pregnancy? I had a lot of friends who had battled infertility longer than I had. Obviously we were, we were at the one year mark and friends who still to this day are, you know, trying to be parents. And a lot of them have been so gracious to share their stories with me, but there's also that element of fear that comes with knowing. I don't know which is worse, the unknown or knowing the possibilities. And I had a lot of friends who lost babies, um, especially early on and especially with, you know, infertility diagnosis. So there was kind of this moment in my mind where I had to stop and really come to terms with the idea that I don't have to earn a healthy pregnancy. Yeah. And that really was something I struggled with because I just assumed at this point, I would lose a baby before I had a baby. And that was really warped, but I think it was an element of self-protection too, because I was fearful. And when I first found out I was pregnant and I went to my doctor, she was gracious enough to do like a beta draw so I could feel confident that this was a viable pregnancy and, you know, all these things. And I left her office and the song we had sang at church the morning I found out I was pregnant came on. And I had to actually pull over on the side of 512. And I just sobbed. I sobbed. And I think that was the moment that I realized um, whether she lives eight weeks or 80 years, that's not my job. Right. And sorry. Um, I can either spend her entire life worrying or I can enjoy what I have. Yeah. And I knew that regardless of what that looked like, I had to make that decision then. Yeah. And obviously now I have a very healthy, active, crazy 13 month old. There are moments still where, you know, mom guilt and worry get the best of you. But I think knowing that months and months and months before she was even born, um, I let go of it. And so when those things pop up, I think I have that moment of, oh no. And then you remember it's already gone and it's not mine to worry about. So it was a really incredible moment. And I think too, she's just such a reminder of God's faithfulness for us. Yeah. That seeing her, you know, toddle around our house is really, we live with that reminder. Yeah. And that's pretty incredible. You know, not very many people get that constant, you know, input. So she's pretty special. That's amazing. Yeah. Sorry. You're fine. I'm a crier. I'm it's a crier okay. and a hugger. That's okay. You know, I think we talked about, I talked about this with um, Amanda Bills in her episode mm-hmm. a lot that just becoming a mom forces you, forces you to really trust the Lord in yeah. a new way. And you have to develop this depth of relationship with God because being a mom is so, sometimes you can feel so out of control. Mm-hmm. This is so much bigger than you. Being a parent is so much bigger than you. And it's really not about you. Right. I think we all know that, but it's a hard reality I think there's sometimes. such an element of peace, though, when you finally let go of that. Yeah. Um, which, I, you know, I still struggle with. But knowing it's not mine to fix or it's not mine to control. It's not mine to hold. And I don't think that's my daily mindset and it should be. Um, but there's that element of peace when you finally are able to let go, whether it's your pregnancy or you're, you know, I've got a healthy kid and I have no reason to worry, but that's what moms do. And that's what we do best. So it's been a big challenge in that sense, but I think it's such an opportunity for growth. And once I kind of 
you know, just latched onto that. Every time fear crept in, I just had that moment of, I already dealt with this, move on. You know, like I don't yeah. have time to be worried because I'm enjoying it and I'm enjoying her. And I think even now, you know, less so obviously, but those early days of pregnancy, that was my mantra. I've already dealt with this, I'm not fearful. Yeah. And being okay with that, you know, because that's not my job. Yeah. And I think the Lord too, he gives you enough for that day. Yes, exactly. You know, we wake up in the morning and he will give you the grace to get through that day. Mm -hmm. But tomorrow we're going to have to wake up again and say, okay, God, I need you to, I need you to remind me that you're here with me and trust him that he's going to, you know, go before you. But that's hard. It's a daily thing, definitely, especially for moms and parents and, you know, everyone out there. Okay, Lindsay, let's jump into your birth story. Talk to us about being in labor. How was your birth experience with your little girl? So I was one of those really obnoxious pregnant ladies that loved every second of it, probably all the way up till about 36, maybe 38 weeks. And I had a very smooth pregnancy. I was never morning sick. I, you know, I had, I had it good and I was really thankful for that. And um, come 38 weeks, I met with my midwife and she asked if I wanted to be checked for the first time. And I said, yes. And, you know, it's uncomfortable, obviously, but I'm just kind of waiting and she keeps checking me. She's on like the third check. And finally, she looks at me astonished. And at this point, I had had some Braxton Hicks, but no real contractions. I really hadn't felt any significant progress towards labor. Hadn't really had any symptoms. And she said, you're five centimeters dilated and 70% effaced. I'll see you this weekend. You're having a baby. And I took a second to compose myself because that was shocking. And I really was, I had prepared myself for zero centimeters, zero percent. Because right. that's really all the progress I had noticed or, you know, felt. And for being a first, first time, time mom. mom. Yep. So I immediately, I don't even think I had pants on yet, called my husband and was like, apparently we're having a baby. And, you know, I told him, like, I'm not in labor, but. And that's kind of a weird thought because we have friends who had told us, yeah, by three centimeters, I was on all fours in the hospital throwing up. I'm like, I didn't know anything was even happening. Right. So That's five free points yes, that exactly. you got. I was already halfway there and didn't know it. We spent that whole weekend doing everything possible to induce labor. Because at this point, I thought my body was ready and I was over it. And really, it was a more of a mental game. I was uncomfortable, of course. But once somebody says, you're having a baby and there's not a baby in your arms... I would do anything I could to get her out. And I spent all weekend, my poor mother and my poor husband walked so many miles with one foot on a curb and so many minutes bouncing on a ball. I mean, I was miserable because I was just so ready. So, of course, I went back at 39 weeks and I was six centimeters dilated and 80% effaced. And she said, you're still pregnant, which she got to say to me again at 40 weeks. And finally, at my 40-week appointment, you know, I had had my membrane stripped and everything, and she just said, your baby will come when she's ready. And I could not disagree strongly in that moment. I just, I knew she would come when she was ready, but I was past ready. I ended up playing kickball the night before I was supposed to be induced. It wasn't fully planned, but she said at 41 weeks, we're going to make, you know, we, we need to make something happen. So at 40 plus six, I played kickball with my small group. I went out to ice cream with a friend. And while we were at Froyo, I sat down. And I could not stand up. My friend was pregnant at the time, too. And she got up and ran away because she was terrified that I was in labor. And I looked at her and I said, I'm not in labor. I just played kickball. But I couldn't get myself out of the chair. It was like my legs were completely disconnected. So we eventually made our way home. And I sat on the edge of the bed and I told Drew, I can't, I can't lift my legs. I couldn't even get into bed. And so he came over and, you know, lifted my ankles into bed. And I was really uncomfortable at this point. But I had to just concede that I had really overdone it for being so pregnant. While I was laying there, I had a couple of contractions. At this point, I had only had maybe three as far as regular contractions and then a lot of Braxton Hicks. I laid there and I was so uncomfortable. I could not lay on my back anymore, but I was too massive to do anything else. <laughs> so I just decided like, I have to, I have to get out of bed. And as soon as I was upright, I knew something was different. And I was so terrified of sounding the false alarm and, you know, having our whole team rally and meet us that I just kind of hung out and I told Drew, I'm really uncomfortable. I'm just going to take a shower. And at this point I had been timing contractions for a couple, it would probably been maybe 20 minutes because they were probably, they were between seven and nine minutes apart. 
So I got in the shower and when I had told him, you know, I think I might be in labor, he goes, cool, I'm going to go to bed. <laughs> and I said, I don't think that's what Elise meant by rest, but you do you because this is probably not really going to happen. My hopes had been up for far too long at this point sure, and I was convinced sure. I would die pregnant. <laughs> so I got in the shower and the hot water on my back and I knew it was either going to, you know, it was going to calm things down or speed them up. And while I was in the shower, it had been a couple of contractions, but my contractions went from seven to nine minutes apart to less than four. And it happened very quickly. And at this point I was in pain and I knew, okay, this is really it, but we could still be days from meeting our baby. So I finally got out of the shower. I got him up and ready and we called our midwife, the on-call midwife to meet us at the midwifery center. And where were you planning to have your baby? I had planned the whole time to deliver at a midwifery center. It was scheduled to open in May and I was due in August and I thought we were good to go. And come August, they hadn't opened and they had then rescheduled their opening for my due date just after my due date. And so my husband kept telling me, hey, you know, the perk of going late is you get to deliver where you want. Otherwise, I was going to have a hospital delivery. So this was Tuesday night. All this was happening. And the Midwifery Head Center had opened Monday. So they were fresh and new. We called and they said, yeah, we'll meet you over there. Come on in. You know, it sounds like it. And I told my husband, do not call our families. We have phenomenal families who are highly involved. And I did not want four very disappointed parents in a waiting room. And I wanted to be told by a medical professional that this was going to happen before we invited anyone. We went to the midwifery center and I just remember it was very surreal on the drive there because we're laughing and giggling and having this moment of we're about to be a family of three. And then a contraction would hit and I could not hate my life more. Get me out of this car. I am done. And then we were back to laughing and having fun together. And when we got there, we had Drew had you know, was speeding on the way there. But like most dads it are. Was, it was almost two in the morning. So I, you know, excused it. And then as we pulled up, we were a block away. I could see the midwifery center and he stopped at a red light. <laughs> and I don't remember the exact choice words that came out of my mouth, but I'm sure they were along the lines of move. Yeah. We are going. If I can see it, my mind is already there. Get and me he, in the door. Yeah. He now. loves that moment. And when we got in, they met us and We were told we were the only patient for the night. Um, You know, it's a three-room birthing center. So, however, Epic was down and there was no charting available. And so they hooked me up to a monitor and she sat down. The nurse sat down with a piece of paper and a clipboard and said, okay, tell me your name. Tell me your birth date. Do you have any allergies? What was your prenatal care? And we started from (laughs) square one and I felt like a pioneer. They hooked me up to a monitor. What I didn't know was Drew had called our families because it took me 10 minutes to get down the stairs because I was contracting. I am so thankful he did, but my mom got there. My parents got there right after they hooked me up. And at this point, she had checked me. I was seven. Contractions were strong and stable, and they were 60 seconds apart, and we were having a baby. And I just remember that moment of my mom walking in the door. And it was that, I mean, it's chaos. Having a baby is stressful. And then knowing they had no records or no no way of keeping track of anything. Um, And then all of a sudden, my mom was there, and it was just this moment of like, oh, thank you, Jesus. I was put in a room and immediately decided to get in the shower since that had helped so much at home. They were still scrambling to get settled for sure at the new center and nobody had delivered in the room I was in. So every time a new nurse or a midwife or somebody would come in the room, they'd say, um, where are the gloves? Yeah. I don't know where anything is. Oh, do you know where, you know, whatever it was would be. And I was so in the zone that it really didn't bother me. Good for you. But I could not get the shower water hot enough after a little while. It just was that moment of my body was, you know, starting to be more and more particular because it was almost time. And I was admitted at 210 um, to the midwifery center. When I got out of the shower, they had asked, well, do you want us to start filling the tub? You know, you can labor in the tub. Maybe that'll help. And I said yes. So I labored on the side of the bed while I waited for the tub to get situated. And I just remember thinking, if I'm still a seven, this is not going to happen. And as they were filling the tub, the midwife came in and she had actually done all of my prenatal care and had happened to be on call that night. That's awesome. So at the time I was really thankful. She checked me and I was nine and a half centimeters and was able to get in the tub. However, the tub was about six inches deep of cold water. Ooh. And then it was the scramble of where's the water thermometer? Where's this? Where's that? And at that point I cared because it affected you know, oh, my yeah. comfort level. But they got the tub they they were still filling the tub while I was you know obviously ready to deliver 
I thought for sure I was going to be loud and, you know, I thought I was going to have like a mantra, you know, all this, all this time to research birth. And I had all these strategies. And of course, in the moment, things change. But I remember being so afraid because it hurt so bad. And I just remember looking at Drew and, you know, now I realize I know there was nothing he could do for me, but I just begged him to help me. And I just, I just kept asking, why won't you help me? And that's so terrible now. But in the moment, I just needed relief. Yeah. And your body's just literally telling you this needs to end right now. This needs to end. So I had a couple contractions and I had a midwife and a nurse who stayed for my entirety of my birth, in addition to a few other nurses. Um, And the nurse was also a doula. And at this point, we hadn't called the birth photographer. Our families were just arriving. You know, it was this just chaotic moment. And I remember my midwife kind of getting low towards the tub and getting really in my face and being like, you are going to push on this next contraction and all these very, very direct orders. And I don't respond well. And I remember the nurse who was also trained as a doula getting down on my level and saying, okay, this next one's going to hurt, but I need you to be ready and I need you to bear down so you can meet your baby. So I kind of had the two extremes and Um, she was probably the redeeming factor in that moment. And the tub is a corner tub at the center I delivered at. So I tried every which way and, you know, of course couldn't get, comfortable is not the right word, but couldn't find, you know, my groove. And, and my husband had joked through my whole pregnancy that he'd be in the waiting room with a cigar and a (laughs) glass of scotch and he was going to do it old school and didn't want to be on the business end as he called it. And he was so gracious and he put his feet in the tub and he held me up with his forearms under my armpits when I was falling asleep between contractions. And I just kept crossing my legs and and crawling to the corner of the tub where no one could reach me and screaming, I can't do it. I would scream in a high-pitched voice, which does me no good. But in the moment, I was too afraid to try. And finally... I, you know, said, okay, I'll I'll try. I'll try. They talked me into it. I don't know what else I thought I was going to do, but I pushed for about 10 minutes, probably through about six or seven contractions with, you know, taking a few breaks and it got her low enough that at this point the midwife had said, you know, she's right there. She's right there. And Drew was convinced they were lying to help motivate me. And (laughs) he wouldn't say it at the time, but he admits to it openly now. The next push he could see her head and it really, I think, surprised him. And he looked at me and he was struggling with seeing me in pain up until this point. Oh, but yeah. he looked at me and he said, Lindsay, I can see her head. And he burst into tears. Aww. And to me, that was, that was it. That was my moment. And I was going to end this because I could not handle my pain or his at this time. So I planted my feet and in one push, head to toe delivered my baby. She was massive and gray and my water didn't break until I delivered. That's amazing. Um, yeah, she was almost born in call, not quite. But because of that, I had a really smooth, clean birth. And it sounds ridiculous, but I prayed and prayed and prayed throughout my pregnancy. Lord, give me a baby who is long, skinny, and slippery with hair. <laughs> and that's all I wanted, which is ridiculous. Of course, healthy was important. But indeed, she was long. She was almost 22 inches. She was slippery, born almost in call. And she was eight and a half pounds. So she was long and skinny, but not for lack of weight. And bald as all get out, (laughs) which, you know, was the trade-off. And I delivered her myself. I pulled her out of the water to my chest. I ended up cutting her cord. Drew had said early on that was not his jam, and that was fine. I cut the cord, and they, you know, to get me out of the tub to deliver my placenta, they gave him skin to skin. My delivery was super smooth, super fast. She was born at 341 was admitted at 210 and my first contraction was about 1230. And it's funny now to go back thanks to social media. I was talking to somebody on Facebook at 1215. Like I had no idea what was coming. Wow. And when she finally made her entrance, it was fast and furious. And I ended up fracturing my tailbone because I delivered in one push, which, you know, we've all talked about, but I won't make that mistake again. I will do everything I can to take my time next time. Um, had some delivery complications with my placenta. It took a long time. They obviously tried to get me to do skin to skin and get the latched, but there was some concern about my tear and about my placenta. So at this point, the nurses were all focused on that and not on my baby. 
So she was laying on my chest and she ended up blistering me and, you know, neither of us knew what we were doing and we were doing the best we could, but there was a lot of chaos. Um, my repair took over two hours and at the end of screaming and fighting with my midwife, I fired her mid-stitch and she wasn't the person who I felt like I had been seeing for the last, you know, nine months. And at the time she was also pregnant and I think that played a big factor, but she was threatening and she was yelling and all these things that birth should not be. So I fired her and I told her she would not touch me again. And at this point, Theo was withdrew skin to skin and my mom was holding me down on the bed with nitrous because with the birth center opening so recently, they had no pain medication. So I had a can of dermaplast for these two hours of stitching. Oh, Lindsay. So I even, you know, less than 12 hours after birth said, I will do a water birth again. I could handle that. I cannot ever do a repair again. Knock me out cold. Wake me up when it's over. Um, and that was, I think, the hardest part of my birth. I would not recommend that element, but there was no other option in the moment. Um, I had a really, really gracious midwife come in and relieve my midwife. And she was kind and she was soft and I needed that. And um, I actually told her, I won't, I won't let you stitch me anymore. So she ended up cutting the needle and just, I didn't tie off my stitches. I didn't do anything. I think that was the moment that I was like, okay, I'm done. You know, my body has done everything it could and I was just tired. So we ended up um, staying for breakfast. We ended up getting, you know, we were discharged within four hours of my birth and we were home before lunch. So it was really, really incredibly fast. The recovery was harder than birth. And I think that's ridiculous to say out loud now, but my body knew what to do as much as I didn't want to let it. Right. <laughs> and I felt an element of control there. So once we got through, you know, the harder part of repair, it was, it was smooth sailing. A broken oh. tailbone though. What did that postpartum journey yeah. look like for you? So I'm really, really thankful. I have good people. And uh, I love my tribe. So same people who brought Amanda dinner on the night Lennon was born were the same people who were at my house bringing me dinner and cleaning my house the night Theo was born. It's kind of a tradition. We make the same meal. We spend that evening kind of, you know, as one big family. So that was huge. And having other moms to do that first, you know, those first early weeks where everything's a mystery and everything you do you think is wrong. Uh, that was really important. Physically, I really struggled with nursing. Uh, my milk didn't come in for almost five days. And, Which is normal. Right. Which is so normal. But with the start we had to nursing, I was cracked and bleeding and blistered within hours of birth. And oh. I went back and saw a lactation consultant the next day. Didn't have a positive experience with her. And she said, this is something I wouldn't F around with when she saw my baby's weight loss at 24 hours. Wow. And kind of just put me in this fear mindset. You know, I'm not doing it right. I'm starving my baby. This is my fault. And met with a couple other lactation consultants, you know, regained some confidence, but my milk took quite a while and I really struggled. We used a shield for a long time. At finally six months old, we found an absorption disorder and we found an allergy. So up yeah. until that point, I battled thinking it was nursing or that it was, you know, my diet or breast milk or whatever the case may be. Um, and that really wasn't the cause of a lot of the strain and the issues we did have, but it was a battle. So those early days of nursing, I remember the first time I nursed at church and like went into the mother's room and it took me 45 minutes to oh, just yeah. get prepared and set up for one side. And I remember thinking, I don't know if I was made to do this. And once we kind of got through some of those battles and we, you know, had worked through some of those things, that was a lot easier. Physically, I, you know, refused stitches. And my original midwife said, I'll see you at one week postpartum. And I cried and told my husband I wasn't going. And he said, you know, let's just give her a shot. That was a high you know, high stress situation. And right off the bat, she was immediately apologetic, all these things. And I was so terrified for my postpartum exam at a week after birth, I, my knees were trembling and I was crying and shaking. And, um, during my exam, she was just as coarse as she was during my birth. And I told Drew, I would never go back. And since I've learned she's no longer practicing there, I was told at one week postpartum, you're going to be a great candidate for a vagioplasty in five weeks. Wow. And as how did that make you feel? Who had a lot of hormones and was already worried yeah. about the way everything was healing. And at this point, I was, I don't think I had opened my knees more than a half inch because I was so terrified. Um, I was really stressed. And I ended up seeing a really phenomenal midwife for all of my care since then. And she just really reiterated to me that your body will do what it can and we'll handle the rest. But you have to let your body heal first. Yeah. So that was super important to me. 
at six weeks, I was completely healed. That's and amazing. the midwife who did my follow-up said, you know, aside from the small child in this office, I wouldn't have known that you had a baby. So that was really incredible considering I had refused some of my postpartum care. The tailbone was a work for months and months and months. I couldn't sit without going numb or without being in pain, but I sat on my daughter's boppy for weeks at a time, and that was kind of a saving grace. I was overweight when I got pregnant, um, which was part of PCOS and partially lifestyle choices, and was really, really intentional about my weight gain during pregnancy, trying to keep it to a minimum. And I luckily had pretty healthy cravings, but I lost a lot of that weight actually above and beyond after. So I felt like my body healed fairly well. Um, Thea started sleeping through the night at four days old and people hate me for that, which is okay. I understand because I'm sure the next one will not, but I was sleeping 12 plus hours a night at that point with maybe one night feed. And because of that, I think that was my saving grace that my body had time to repair and do the things it needed. And there were rough nights, of course, here and there, but as a whole, I had not ever slept as much as I did as a new mom, which didn't last forever. But for those first couple months, that was so critical, I think, to my care. I started seeing a postpartum specialist, um, a therapist who does all things mom, all things baby. And I had dealt with some anxiety previous to pregnancy. So I just wanted to make sure that, you know, dark and twisty comes easily for me. So she was really instrumental, I think, in keeping myself healthy mentally. And um, I still see her just, you know, every so often to check in. And she texted me yesterday to see how life was. And it's nice to know you have someone without needing someone. Right. And I think it was really helpful, too, that that was just her area of expertise. And she teaches baby classes and parenting classes. And when Thea would lose her mind during a counseling session, she's like, oh, here, let me help you. Let me handle this. Mm -hmm. Let me show you. And that was great. So as a whole, really... I mean, there's always that doubt and there's that that fear and then there's the physical element of I don't know what to do with my own body right now. But postpartum recovery outside of the actual birth recovery was fairly smooth. That's awesome. What has been kind of your biggest challenge in that first year and what do you feel like God is really trying to teach you in this season of your life? I think, you know, the early days, it's easy to fall prey to that what if. Um, not so much even fear-based, but guilt-based. You know, as a baby who, or having a baby who was practically failure to thrive, um, if you saw her at six months, she was incredibly tall, off the charts tall, and off the charts skinny. And there's just that moment where, you know, a stranger in public makes a comment, and, and you let it ruin your whole day. Yeah. Or you then start to question, and you wonder, I'm not big on comparison, um, but I think it's really easy in those early days to f- you know, well, that mom's doing this or whatever. And I think once I had experienced a few seasons of motherhood and obviously, you know, continuing to learn, but I've had to learn that I'm a firm believer in the survival of motherhood. And what that looks like for you is different for each person, for each kid. And that as well-meaning as most people are, they don't know. And Mm -hmm. they don't know your home and they don't know your child. And that's why God gave them to you. Mm -hmm. So that was really hard, I think, but instrumental in getting to the point where I can really enjoy my daughter now because I'm not wrapped up. But I think it's easy, especially in those early days when things are new and hard. And that was a big challenge. And just learning to adapt and find, you know, who are you underneath that layer of motherhood? And motherhood even more so than, you know, being a wife or having a job. But in addition to all those things, who are you now? Because some of the things that define you previously relate really strongly to how you spend your time. And those things aren't true necessarily anymore. And it's not that they aren't there, but for this season, you know, you're devoting your time to another person. So those were really probably my early challenges. Right now I started a new job um, just a couple months ago and, you know, I felt God's urging to go and I took a pretty major pay cut to do so. And I took a big, you know, I have no seniority now. I have no, those kind of those safety blanket things. And the longer I'm there, And I'm surrounded with really phenomenal Christian people, and God's been giving me a lot of opportunities. I have just really been reflecting on his sustaining nature. I think it's easy to remember that God provides for us or that he gives us, you know, good gifts or that he's faithful to us. And all those things are true. But that day-to-day sustenance Mm. has been so important to me. And I think even in the last couple of weeks, learning to develop new habits and, you know, removing some things from my vocabulary and adding others so that I feel 
Like I'm allowing him to sustain me. I'm kind of a white knuckle person. If I can push through and do better, do more, I will. And I think that there's an element of feeling like if I let God take control of the situation, I've given up. Hmm. And there's that element of loss of control. It's that surrender piece. Yes, exactly. And I think in a, in a good season, in a safe season, that's easy to forget. Hmm. And I'm trying really hard right now. And he's being really gracious to show me that in these good seasons, you can still find that goodness. And you can still find that sustenance. You don't have to be at the depths of despair to have God sustain you. And it doesn't have to be after a massive event or, you know, come to Jesus moment, but that every day, every word, every interaction is an opportunity to let him take control and let him feed you. You know, I think of it in that, in the basic terms of life giving sustenance. And we think of that with motherhood, you know, there's so many elements there that God has been so provisional, but especially in the moments when it's good. You know, it's, I think yeah. I'm faithful in the hard because it's the only option sometimes you feel. But when it's good and things are new and fresh, I think he's been very reminding me very frequently that that's the time to dig deeper and to be called higher from that. And I think that's been so instrumental in this new season, in the season now of toddlerhood that we're entering, which is a whirlwind of its own. Um, in this new season of my marriage, I don't have a tiny person who needs me 24-7, just most of the time. Right, right. But, it, you know, it's constantly changing. And I think letting God do what he does best and letting him be God instead in these moments, it's important to recognize that in each season because it's easy to fall into bad habits. And they're not bad things. They're just not best practice when it comes to God being God in your life and you not being God. So I think that's been really a huge thing for me, especially in the last probably couple of months as I made some big transitions. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, so what's one like practical example you might be able to share about the ways that you have allowed God to sustain you in the day-to-day? I think it's so important and just tangibly to have community like I said, we've got great people and we're all raising tiny people together and those struggles and those frustrations. And I cannot tell you how many times my friends have showed up on my door with a cup of coffee or a meal, or they've offered to take my daughter for the day. And it's not that those things necessarily solve, but when you let your people take care of you, then you get to return the favor too. And I think seeing God's provision through people, you know, is a really Mm -hmm. tangible way. I've just been very reminded that God is ever present lately. And when I'm thinking about, you know, hard lessons that I'm doing with my class or, you know, working through hard stuff, I've got some students who are facing really major challenges and coming from an early childhood side, that's not what I'm used to dealing with. And as they bring some of those things to me, the next morning I'm reading a devotion and the verse that they needed was there. Mm. And, you know, he's just so present, but we have to be looking for it. We have to be doing our part. Otherwise he, he's still there, but we're not recognizing it. I've noticed it a lot in my quiet time. I've tried to be more intentional about, you know, praying for my daughter. It's it's hard to remember she's her own person sometimes. You know, she's not just an extension of the two of us. Praying for the seasons to come and then seeing how that plays out now. You know, he's been so gracious in this season of parenthood and, and just watching her grow. So I think as I see, you know, other people, you know, doing that those works that are sustaining for us and then getting to see kind of the outcomes. It's easy to pray without seeing the end because you don't know what it'll look like, but having to recognize right. the actual answers to those prayers has been really big for yeah. us. To be like, no, look, God did this yes. and here's the result. And of- it's so easy to think I did or I, you know, created or I caused or, you know, I worked hard enough. And I think culturally we get into that mindset because we're us-based and having to step back and change the way I think and talk about those things to give God the glory and to be more available because the more I recognize what he's doing, the more I realize I might've missed something else and he's always got something else going and I need to be present for that. I think especially in motherhood, it's easy to get sucked into the, I do, I do, I do the best I can. And that's true, but I need to do so by God's grace. Yeah, that's good. Okay, Lindsay, what are three things you cannot live without right now? I already confessed to you this is my fifth cup of coffee that I'm drinking right now. So that's huge. In this season of just utter busyness, I'm a caffeine fiend. Well, Um, it is National Coffee Day today. It is National Coffee Day. It It was created with me in mind, I'm sure. 
Uh, that's a huge one. I can't live without my people. I've mentioned them a bunch, but that's the highlight of my week easily. You know, getting to parent with them and getting to be friends and still being able to be Lindsay. Not just Drew's wife, not just Thea's mom, but getting to be my own person with them is huge. So my community is is really important. And I've got a good group of very diverse people, which is important to me. So this is a little ridiculous for it to be my thing, but my daughter lives and dies by the Wubbanub, which was not my favorite item when I became a parent, but has very quickly weaseled its way into my heart. You better believe there's one in every pocket of every bag in every car. Oh, yeah. So, you know, if I've got coffee and good people and a and a sweet pacifier for my baby to be happy, I think I'm, I'm in the right place. You're good. <laughs> You're doing good. Awesome. Well, thank you, Lindsay, so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming out on this, you know, dark fall rainy night and spending time with me i just enjoyed hearing your story and gosh the amazing things that god's doing in your life it's been super fun thanks for coming thank you I hope you all enjoyed that conversation with Lindsay. She has such empathy and compassion for those around her. I just know the Lord is using her to impact her students and those around her in such a huge way. I think one of my favorite parts about our conversation was when she talked about remembering who we are outside of our roles as moms. That is so hard to do sometimes, but so, so good. The Lord has designed each of us for a specific purpose, and I never want to lose sight of that in just the busyness of our days. I hope you guys took something out of that conversation with Lindsay. I know I sure did. I wanted to take a minute and share with you all just a little bit about what God's been speaking into my life lately. The Lord has just been pressing in and challenging me to be content and satisfied in the Lord in this season of life that I'm in right now. I was reading in Philippians and Philippians 4 this week, and the Apostle Paul talks about how learning to be content in every season brings so much peace. And it's so easy today to become distracted by comparison. You guys, comparison will steal your joy. It will rob you of peace. And I've been learning that the Lord is just so faithful to bring peace when I find complete satisfaction in Him. Gratefulness and an attitude of praise will take our eyes off of our needs and our wants and will point us to a God who is so much bigger than our circumstance. I believe this week as we choose to worship and praise the Lord, He is going to be so faithful to overwhelm us with His peace. Thank you all so much for listening today. You guys have been amazing, and I have been so blessed by every message and email or text you've sent me. It means the world to me. If you have been enjoying this podcast, I would love it if you would subscribe and share the show with a friend. I would just love the opportunity to encourage those who are closest to you in your world. And you know what? I would still love to hear from you all. You can connect with me on Instagram at Perfectly Wonderfully Made or find me on Facebook at your birth class. You guys can send me an email at elise at elisemarsh.com. I would just love to get to know you, hear about maybe your ideas, um, what's going on in your world. So don't hesitate to reach out to me. If you have pregnant friends in your life, or maybe you're pregnant, I want to let you know about a resource I've created just for you. I've designed a free six-day childbirth education course that's going to help every single pregnant mama have the best birth experience possible. You'll receive one email from me in your inbox each day with a new lesson. And you guys, I really do believe this resource can make a huge difference in the way that you feel about how your birth experience was for you. 
So go ahead, take a few moments, head on over to my website, elisemarsh.com, and sign up for my free six-day childbirth education course. We'll be back next week with another awesome story. I am... We'll be back next week with another amazing story for you all. So enjoy your week, you guys, and thank you so much for listening. 